Welcome back, or welcome if this is your first time to Author Conversations, brought to you today by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and it is our first episode of 2020, and you believe it. We have a new theme song, and I will speak more about that after the interview, so stay tuned for that. Today, I am speaking with an author I have done battle with on a trivia team, talked history with, taken a tour with, and have been a fan of for a while. I'm speaking of none other than Chris Downey. Chris is the owner and operator of Captain Bird's Boat Tours here in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina, and has worked the past 15 years in the marine operations steamship industry. Chris is also a member of the Charleston Visitors Bureau and the South Carolina Historical Society, and is author to History Press's Steve Bonnet, Charleston's Gentleman Pirate, and Charleston and the Golden Age Piracy. Both are must-read for any Colonial Maritime history fans or a pirate fan. Chris's new book focuses on Edgar Allan Poe and the time he spent in the Charleston area. Why did Poe spend time in Charleston? Where was he? Who was he with? How did it influence him? Let's talk with Chris to find out and maybe talk some pirate history while we do. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Chris, I want to start by talking about your new book. First, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. It's going to be my first podcast of the new year, 2020. That's nuts, right? That is crazy. It is crazy. So I don't know if you know this or not, but we have you know we have a mutual pal, Alan, down at the Powder Magazine here in Charleston. We both sure. live in Charleston. We've both worked in the tourism industry. We both still work in the tourism industry to an extent. I work part-time at the Powder Magazine, and I was down there. And not too long ago, we were talking about Edgar Allan Poe in Charleston. Uh, I was talking down yeah. there with John about it. And then, lo and behold, I see one of the books I'm going to be working on is with you, one of my favorite all-time authors, Chris Downey, about Edgar Allan Poe in Charleston. Then it comes awesome. out in February, February 24th, 2020. And I don't know if you remember, but in 2018, we were on a team together on the Charleston History Bowl. And we were battling for that coveted golden powder horn. I know. We were like one point short. Yeah. It was so aggravating. (laughs) I wanted it so bad. And one of the questions involved the correct spelling of Poe's middle name, which you got right for us. And we almost won. That's right. Yep. That night, we, I knew you took Poe seriously. How long have you been a fan (laughs) of Poe? Gosh, as long as I can remember, because I grew up a little south of Richmond, Virginia. And of course, Poe grew up in Richmond and, you know, there's the Poe Museum in Richmond, which is really famous. So uh, I think we first started reading Poe when I was in middle school, like the seventh grade. So I've been I've known Poe for a while. Now, when I was a kid, I'm not going to lie, for a long time, I thought Vincent Price was Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> they were interchangeable yeah. to me. Yeah, well, if you go to Poe's Tavern, actually, into the men's restroom, they stream a constant uh, feed of someone reading Poe poetry or stories, and one of them is Vincent Price. So uh, you'll be in the men's room, and you're like, is that Vincent Price talking? And it sure is. He's like reading The Raven. <laughs> <laughs> now, Poe, he didn't just end up in the low country of South Carolina by chance. Anybody who knows Poe's life story, it's uh there's a lot of twists and turns, especially in his early life. Well, his whole life is a lot of twists and turns. Can you give us a bit of a background on his life and the events that led up to his arrival in the low country of South Carolina? Sure. Well, the first time he was actually in Charleston, he was two years old, so he probably doesn't recall or wouldn't recall much of it. He was with his mother, who was an actress, and she was here in Charleston when he was a two-year-old. 
Uh, it was Edgar and then his sister. Uh, his brother stayed with family up north, but he came with his mother. She was here in the spring of uh, 1811, and uh, he spent about four months here in Charleston. But this, the the second time he came, he came when he was an 18-year-old. He had joined the Army, actually, in Boston. Uh, he had lied and said he was 22 um, and joined, and he was in the artillery and uh, shortly after joining, just a few months after joining in Boston, he was shipped down to relieve the garrison here at Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island. So he arrived here in November of 1827 and uh, spent about 13 months at Fort Moultrie as part of the uh, U.S. Army. Under the false name of Edgar A. Perry, um, he he was running from a lot of things, but uh, the change in name was mostly due to he had run up some gambling debts. He had gone to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Uh, UVA was only a year old at that time, uh, and his father didn't really give him enough money to to survive too well at the University of Virginia. So uh, he turned to gambling. He ran about $2,000 in debt, and he was basically on the run from creditors. Um and so he had changed his name several times, actually, before he became Edgar A. Perry and arrived in Charleston in 1827. Yeah, and when his father dies, I mean, he gets taken in by, was it a family member or is it a stepfather? Uh, so originally, so his mother, his father disappeared uh, uh, in New York. He was also an actor who also had performed here in Charleston. Uh, but he disappeared. He was an alcoholic. He disappeared. No one's really sure what happened to him. Poe tradition says that he probably died of uh, alcoholism um, shortly after he disappeared in New York. Uh, and then when his mother dies in 1812, um, he is taken in by the Allen family, who is uh, – John Allen is a merchant from Scotland and Richmond. And uh, his wife especially, Frances Allen, had been a big fan of the theater, uh, was familiar with uh, Poe's mother – and kind of leaned on her husband to take in uh, Edgar as their son. They never formally adopted him, but he became um, part of the family, and that's when he added Allen to his name. He became Edgar Allan Poe when he joined the the Allen family in Richmond when he was just turning three. Yeah, and just because you know, I was a f- you know, as I grew up, you know, especially you know, in high school. You know, everybody kind of has that little bit of a dark phase they go through in high school. I think even if they don't want to sure. admit it. You know, and I became wanted to learn more about the author. Like, I know he and his, you know, I guess, you know, in my mind, adopted father, even though he didn't, you know, necessarily really, I guess, legally do it, it sounds like, but didn't get along that well. But it sounds like he had kind of a close relationship, you know, with with Mrs. Allen. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if there's one central theme to Poe's life, it's uh, the need and desire to find a female presence in his life first in the maternal motherly sense and then later in a more like romantic feminine sense but yes he was very close to Frances allen um she was sick a lot uh when he was growing up so she probably couldn't offer him quite the, the mother time that he needed to, and he started to look outside the family for some other female influences in his life but yes he was very close to his mother Frances allen but he and john allen definitely did not see eye to eye he was uh john allen was was a merchant. He was a very hard-nosed, non, no-nonsense uh, businessman. And, of course, Poe, being a poet, artistic, coming from 
a mother and father who are both actors, uh, their two personalities just did not jive, let's say. So uh, he and John Allen definitely had a, a tough road. Was she died before, <clears throat> excuse me, was she died before or after he joins the military? So Poe had joined the military. He came here to Charleston for 13 months. And then shortly after he was transferred back up to Virginia, um, he got the news that she was sick and dying. And he actually arrived back in Richmond the day after she died. So he was still in the Army um, uh, when Francis Allen died. Hmm. And then John Allen remarried pretty quickly, actually. Um, And then he died a few years later. And, of course, that would have an effect on him, too. I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And it turned out that Poe discovered that John Allen had actually fathered two children with another woman while he was married to Francis Allen, which for Poe was very difficult pill to swallow as well. So his mother had been here. His father had been here. Have you been able to track down where any of the theaters were at where his parents had performed? Yes. So uh, the original theater that his mother performed in was on Church Street. It's not there anymore, but it was called the City Theater or the French Theater. There was a Frenchman named John Soleil who had opened a theater on Church Street to compete with another theater, which his parents also performed at, which was the Charleston Theater, which is on Broad Street, um, not too far away from the – it's called Savage Green, so a little bit up Broad Street, not too far from the Catholic Church across the street. The 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 building, the tenement is still there. It's not a theater anymore, but uh, the building is still there, and that was the Charleston Theater, which was the premier theater in Charleston at the time. Okay, wow, that's really cool that all that is still there. And there's a lot of, I mean, people who come to Charleston see our beautiful buildings and everything, but they don't, I mean, really, I think, grasp. You can go on a walking tour, which we encourage you to do. Or any of our other tours, but you can also just by, for instance, you know, walking down one of our amazing streets, and I think one of our historical streets that people don't really realize, for instance, Trad Street, and just reading the plaques on the houses, you can learn a lot of our early history just by doing that. Um, You know, we're really lucky to live where we live at to have access to that kind of history. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it still. I'm sure you do, too. <laughs> I do, too, yes. Yeah, there's nothing like it. I mean, once a week, you know, or more, I love to do something like that. All right, so what was so we know what Charleston's like now because we live here. We love it. Um, we're part of it. But what was Charleston like when Poe got here? Well, unfortunately for Poe, he was obviously stationed over on Sullivan's Island <clears throat> at the time, so mm-hmm. – there wasn't much going on at Sullivan's Island. Moultrieville had just been incorporated 10 years before he arrived, and it was kind of becoming a bit of a summer resort for people who lived in Charleston. Uh, you know, they would come over to escape the heat and, and the summertime. But, um, you know, Charleston was a wealthy city. I mean, he's here in 1827, 1828. You know, it's the beginning of the antebellum period of Charleston. People are wealthy. Uh, you know, it's still one of the wealthiest cities in the United States. So I'm sure that Poe took advantage of any chance he had to escape Sullivan's Island when he had time on leave to come over to the city and uh, and enjoy the, the bars and restaurants and and probably chase girls, if I had to guess. Yeah, and how did he adapt to life in the Army? It, it actually, you know what? It's strange, you know, for, for Poe, who was – pretty much unappreciated at a lot of levels as a writer during his, his lifetime. Um, you know, certainly financially he didn't benefit much from his writing. 
the army seems to be the one occupation in his life that that really took note of like how successful he was and appreciated that. I mean, he really excelled by the time he left the army um, in eighteen twenty eight. He had reached uh, the highest rank possible for a a enlisted man. Um, and then, of course, he left the army and then decided that he wanted to go to West Point and pursue the the military as a career, which didn't work out either. But, uh, you know, the army was really good for Poe. He quickly rose through the ranks um, here in Charleston. He got promoted several times. He doubled his salary before he left and uh, was really successful when it came to the U.S. Army. Yeah, and that was, you know, kind of shocking to me learning about him is, you know, how that was that kind of regimented lifestyle, you know, worked well for him uh, doing that. And then, you know, you when I found out he did go to West Point and then, you know, he kind of flunks out. But also it I was kind of shocked to learn, too, that he had some soldiers around him who were cadets around him who helped him raise money to kind of publish some works also. It's true, he did. So his first book of poetry, he actually didn't have his name uh, associated with the book. It was just signed by a Bostonian. He had left Richmond, left his father, trying to escape creditors. He went up north to Boston, and his first book of poetry uh, was signed a Bostonian. But when he went to uh, West Point, he collected some funds from some of his fellow cadets and released what you know really was more or less his first book book of poetry under his name, uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, some of his uh, classmates obviously weren't too impressed by what he'd written. Uh, there was a copy found uh, that someone had written uh, in the margins of it that uh, basically this book was a ripoff that I've been cheated by the money I've given to this guy. But <laughs> um, yes, yes, he did. He got money from some of his fellow cadets to publish in poetry. That's great. That's unbelievable, too. I mean, it's... <laughs> I mean, some people, you know, there's there's cadets around him that saw this, you know, something that and I've just thought of this question, you know, I wonder if there were any cadets that later became, you know, national military history, you know, national military heroes that we would know now who were classmates of Poe. Yeah, I mean, if it was 1829, I mean, you have to imagine that, you know, with the Civil War. 30 years away that, you know, some of those career guys probably so absolutely. But, you know, unfortunately in the army, when he was in the army here in Charleston, because he was under a, a false name, it wasn't until 35 years after he left Charleston that someone put together the fact that Edgar A. Perry was actually Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. So it took 35 years for us yeah. even to piece it together and say, Hey, this is who this guy was. Well, anybody who visits, and everyone who lives here knows that this place, Low Country, Charleston, Folly Beach, Sullivan's Island, all this area, you know, if you live here, you know, some people say pluff mud stinks, but to, I think you agree, it, to us it smells pretty good, especially That's if you right. go away and you come back home <laughs> and you smell it. So this area leaves a mark on anyone who visits or lives here. So what mark did it leave on Poe? Well, you know, Poe was, uh, most of his writing, he wrote generally in a gothic style when it came to his stories and one of the kind of themes of a gothic story is uh, the setting is a very like mystical unknown place you know like a castle or something like that but obviously when he wrote the gold bug um 
later in life. <clears throat> it took him 15 years to kind of recall all that he had absorbed by living in the low country. But when he writes the gold bug, uh, he makes the story set. And in the first few sentences, it talks about Charleston, Sullivan's Island, and, you know, the characteristics of, of the low country, which for Poe was very much a break from his usual writings, because like I said, you know, the classic Gothic style, you kind of leave as a mystical setting, not a, an exact location, but he definitely uh, took a detour from that and wrote about uh, the low country. Now he does take a couple of little, a little uh, breaks from reality. He adds some cliffs and some rocks and things to the low country to fit the story. But uh, he does recall, even though it took him 15 years, he recalls us from pretty rich, rich detail, uh, the, the landscape of the low country. Yeah. And there's other stuff, you know, a lot of other you know things in this book, details in this book that we're not going to go into here because we want people to buy the book. We want people to uncover more of the history of Poe and more of the history of Charleston and the rich tapestry we we have here in the low country that contributes to Poe by reading the book. But we also have two other books I want to make people familiar with that you've written. And this was my first introduction to you before I even started working with the history press. And I actually got to meet you before I started working with the history press at a pirate festival when you were talking about one of the books, and that was about Steed Bonnet. And yes. uh, you have also you've written Steed Bonnet and Charleston in the Golden Age of Piracy. And uh, ever since I was a kid, I was a big fan of pirates. And not just because, you know, obviously I was out of high school when Pirates of the Caribbean came out. I had ridden the ride at Disney World, but I had learned about how you know they were kind of the first form of Republican, republicanism and democracy on this side of the right. Atlantic Ocean. And I really thought that was pretty cool. Um of course, there are also some bad things about pirates, too. Um, <laughs> yes. But it's what was our city's relationship like when we were still Charlestown uh, with pirates in the beginning? In the beginning, it was actually uh, pretty good. There was a, a, a bit of a mutual respect between the people in Charlestown and the pirates because, you know, in the beginning, the population really struggled. We had built a walled city. You know, we were in fear of the French and the Spanish uh, relations with a lot of the Native Americans around the area was not so good. And so the people of Charlestown were really more than happy for the pirates to come in and sell whatever goods they had at a reduced price. I mean, at the end of the day, what's a pirate? He steals something at sea and then he sells it for cheap because it's all profit for him. But once Charleston really started to boom, particularly with the production of rice, and everyone started to become wealthy, we began to expand plantations outside the city itself. Once the pirates began attacking, particularly the vessels bringing all the goods that that rice was buying in Europe back into Charleston, the relationship quickly deteriorated, and the people of Charlestown were not big fans of the pirates anymore and kind of went on the offensive. And, you know, in the year 1718 alone, we hanged and buried literally dozens of pirates here in Charlestown. Yeah, you brought the blockade, and uh, one of those people in the blockade, it was Blackbeard. Uh, right. And Blackbeard blo uh, blockaded Charleston, and he had a demand. What was that demand he, he had when he blockaded the city? So he sent a, li a list of things he needed into the uh, governor who was living in Charlestown at the time, and, uh, you know, you would think it would be gold, silver, something like that. But it turned out that what his demands were were for medicine, particularly mercury, because uh, Blackbeard and his crew, some of his crew were suffering from some social diseases that they had acquired from 
some of the ladies in the Bahamas. And so at that time, they treated that with mercury. So Blackbeard had come to Charlestown looking for mercury. The doctors mm-hmm. had prescribed it. Um, were called Quicksilver doctors. They refer to mercury as Quicksilver. So he came to Charleston looking for medicine. <laughs> That's just, uh, you know, early health care for pirates, you know. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. Universal I mean, health care uh, <laughs> aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge and Blackbeard's fleet. Yeah, the, the long-term effects of mercury are, are probably worse than, than whatever you're treating with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the time, that's what they were using, yeah. But uh, Blackbeard had already met the subject of one of your other books, Steve Bonnet, by this time. He had, yeah. He met Steve Bonnet actually in the Bahamas. Uh, Steve had entered piracy. He was pretty unsuccessful. Um, he had ordered his crew to attack a Spanish man-of-war off the coast of Florida. He got shot up pretty bad. His crew abandoned him, and he was basically sitting in Nassau Harbor by himself on board his ship. And that's where Blackbird found him. Blackbird knew a good thing when he when he saw one, and uh, he took Steed under his wing and uh, basically took command of Steed's pirate ship, the Revenge, and said, "Hey, Steed, look, I'll teach you the ropes. You'll be the co-captain. I'll be the captain." And they basically went on a pirate frenzy up and down the East Coast. So of course, Blackbeard really was double crossing Steed. He had no interest in having a co-captain, but. Uh, he took advantage of Steed, but Steed did sail with Blackbeard, and Steed was with Blackbeard when he blockaded Charleston in 1718. Yeah, and Steed was basically just a guy who got who had a good life. He was a planner, and he got bored with his home life, went off pirating. That's right. Yeah, we're not totally sure what drove him to piracy. I mean, the, some of the contemporary accounts say that his wife nagged him until he turned to piracy. Some say that he had some mental instabilities. Probably he was politically driven um, – he was definitely a Jacobite at the time. A Jacobite believed that uh, there was a Catholic that should have been the rightful heir to the throne of England. And up until the mid-1700s, the Jacobites had tried several invasions of England to regain the throne. And Steed was definitely a supporter of the Jacobites. So probably in his mind, he was creating some type of quasi-Jacobite navy that he thought was going to assist in uh, putting this Catholic king back on the throne. Hmm. And, uh, well, we know we have a majorette here who goes after Blackbeard, but we don't. We want people to read the books again, so we won't give away what happens right, with Blackbeard, exactly. and we won't give away what happens with old Steve Bonnet. You have to read about yes. that, and you got to come visit the city. you got to come visit Powder Magazine. you got to come meet Chris, and uh, you need to buy his books, and you also need to go ahead and... Uh, order his new book coming out in February and find out about Edgar Allan Poe's time here in Charleston. Well, Chris, thanks for taking time out of your day to talk with me. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Chris. And I want to talk to you about the new theme song. The new theme song is by Jay and Bill's unnamed band project. Now they might change the name of their band. And if they do, I will let you know. And you can find them on Facebook under that same name, Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. When they sent the song to me, it was just entitled Johnny's Song. So I guess that's the name of that song. Jay and I have been friends for over 22 years now. He was in my wedding, and I actually performed the ceremony for his wedding. That's right, I officiated the wedding between him and his beautiful wife, Erica. Jay introduced me to Bill one Saturday by taking me to a store where he liked to hang out and my life forever changed 
You see, this was no ordinary store, but a comic store. And Bill was no ordinary guy. Bill let me and my friends hang out there and play video games, card games, talk, and really, it kept us all out of trouble. Bill, just being a kind guy, helped us all become who we are today. And now my two friends are making music. And I think they do a spectacular job. And I jumped at the chance to ask them to record a theme song for my podcast. So Jay, thanks for being a great friend. And Bill, thanks for being a friend and letting a bunch of kids hang out at your store instead of parking lots and God knows where else. I don't think any of us will ever be able to truly express just how grateful we truly are. And to the audience, thank you for listening. You can find Chris's first two titles and his new title soon on ArcadiaPublishing.com and at your local bookstores. I will see you again soon for another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press.